From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 25. You rook marvelous! So, hi there. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And welcome to The Spiel. The Spiel has reached a quarter century. Can you believe it, Dave? Wow. <laughs> 25 episodes. Sweet. We've got a good episode, I think, in store for you today. Yeah, a lot um, of fun stuff. Doing some kind of abstract strategy games. We've kind of been a little thin on those so far in the, the life right, exactly. of The Spiel. So, Coming about time in, to right. make up on that. Coming up on the list, we've got uh, Mikarinos. And uh, Marvin's... Marvelous Marble Machine. I think I got it right. Did it. <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> exactly. Say that four times fast. <laughs> Crazy. But I think those will be good, and and even some some other kind of abstract games and Goober and and some other good ones in the back shelf spotlight too. So heck yeah, I think it's time to just jump right in and start. Cool. Game news and notes. So my news and notes this week is, uh, got the best name, I think, of any <laughs> of the games that we're going to talk about, Chupacabra. <laughs> Love that. So uh, this game is coming out in uh, May of this year. The designer is Morgan Dauntonville. It's a new game by Cafe Games, which they oh, haven't okay. had anything out since Tempest right. of last year. It's a two to four player game. It's, it's really fast. It's a totally light card game. Probably 10 minutes tops from what I can tell in, in playtime. And it's going to retail for around $12. Um, so like I just said, Tempest was Cafe Games last entry into the game world here. Uh, Chupacabra is like at the <laughs> other end of the spectrum from, from Tempest. Um, Chupacabra takes the legend of the voracious Puerto Rican goat sucker and packs it into a small boxed card game. You are the Chupacabra. Your very presence strikes heart into the fear of goat herders everywhere. You live to suck blood. Goat <laughs> blood. <laughs> so the object of the game, um, you're trying to uh, overpower herds of goats. Um, it's a two to four player game, like I said. You're amassing these packs of chupacabras to time your attacks to know um, when is the best time to strike at the goats to, to get the most goats. Um, the, you want to try to accumulate the best score that you can after someone has been able to suck the suck twenty five goats dry. <laughs> I just, you know, Chupacabra, you had me a Chupacabra exactly. almost. <laughs> Sounds like a hoot. I think it would be a really fun for that light card game uh type of game. I think it just sounds like a hoot. Uh, it sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> My other just tiny little bit of announcement too, in addition to Chupacabra, which I just am going to say exactly. incessantly throughout this episode, I think, um, <laughs> is that there are epic rules for battle lore now posted online on the ah. Days of Wonder site, which is really cool. This is sort of in, in anticipation of um, the Epic Rules coming out in sort of a hard print version that you're going to be able to buy. Um, you can The rules have been posted in addition to five Epic Adventures. You have to have registered, uh, have a registered copy of Battle Lore to access the okay. Epic Rules. 
Um, the printed version, um, which will include an additional game board and other items, is currently scheduled for May of this year to be released. Okay, so, cool. Uh, you don't have to wait too long to actually get the boards, but if you want to start playing is Epic Battles... Is it just Battles, a PDF file that you can download and print? Absolutely. Or absolutely. Awesome. So kudos to, ba- to yeah. uh, Days of Wonder for keeping the Battle Lore train a-rolling. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, so my news and notes today is kind of from the point of view of a collector. So I've got a couple games... I think for me, one of the funnest things about collecting are collecting games in series. <laughs> and one of the most popular um, series of games is the Cosmos games for two players. And I think they are up to, including the ones I'm going to discuss now, 36 games in this series. Insane. The one that's just come out, it's going to um, be out by Rio Grande Games, was designed by Manfred Grabmeyer. It's entitled Sakara. And it's some really cool-looking pyramid-building game that looks really cool. Should be out in April for about between 15 and 18 bucks. Like I said, this is the one that's coming out with an English-language version. There's also another one that's coming out in April just in German. I don't think anybody's picked it up yet. And it's Anno 1701, the card game. Hmm. So it's kind of some... It's obviously... Uh, the designer is Klaus Tabor. <laughs> Surprise. Um should be out in April also, and it's some funky hybrid of Settlers meets Anno seventeen oh one, the PC game. Ah, that so sounds cool. It sounds kind of interesting, and like I said, this is from a collector's point of view. I just have to have these games because I have to finish this series out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's pretty cool. And in that same vein, um, Rio Grande has announced that coming out in April will be number eleven of the Aaliyah Big Box series, ah. and that is Notre Dame. <laughs> it's uh, designed by Stefan Feld, um, three to five players, ages 10 and up, retails typical 40 bucks. You can find it for 26 to 32. The components in this look really neat. I haven't read very much on how this game plays, but each person kind of has their own burrow board that surrounds the, the, cathedral. Uh, the actual cathedral, and they're kind of oval, but they're smushed looking oval things so it has a really neat look to it when the board's laid out so we'll have to figure out mechanically what this game's got for and i don't i don't really care what it's got going for it i have to have it because (laughs) it has number 11 on it baby (laughs) you hear if if you utter the words Aaliyah big box to dave you can hear the drip drip of the drool (laughs) exactly (laughs) because that's all he needs to know (laughs) exactly and one last thing that i want to talk about has nothing to do with games in a series it's a cool little thing on a website called ThoughtHammer.com. Oh. <laughs> we know it's March Madness right now, and they have come up with a really cool little, what do you want to call it, um, um, sale? Yeah, it's a sale, Yeah, it's a sale. They have picked out a game to go with each of the teams in the NCAA tournament. And Which is a college basketball tournament exactly, for, for international <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so it's a bracket-type tournament where you play a game and then move on in the bracket. So just for making it into this bracket, a game is going to be a dollar cheaper than its normal price. If its corresponding team wins and moves to the next level, it will be dropped yet another dollar, (laughs) which means one lucky game going all the way to the end will be a grand total of $7 cheaper (laughs) on top of the already probably 30 or 35%. So kind of a neat sale. Very creative. Very creative. will be fun to watch, and they do have some really cool titles on there. Yeah. So check it out. I think you might find some stuff you'd like. The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100, 
and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. Okay, first off the list tonight is a cool little game called Micarinos. Published by Rio Grande and Yastari in 2006, it was designed by Nicholas Aury. Two to four players, ages 10 and up, list for 30 bucks. You can find it for $20, $25. So here's a little bit of the background story. In Micarinos, you will be taking on the role of an archaeologist in charge of several digs in Egypt. Through the use of your workers and your patrons' special abilities, you will be trying to unearth the most precious artifacts and then display those artifacts in the most prestigious rooms of the museum. So what does that really mean in game terms? And it's basically a influence type of game, and you're going to be placing your little cubes on these little land tiles in hopes of winning these land tiles and then being able to place your little guys in the museum. Kind of a really cool abstract strategy game. The theme is slightly pasted on, but it's kind of a fun theme anyway. So let's look at some of the components we got in here. Um, comes with a little game board. The game board has a score track that runs around the outside of it. There's a passing track on the game board. There's a museum layout. And I'll take a second right now to kind of describe the museum to you because it's a lot of the strategy. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, the museum has five wings. Each wing is coming out from a central point. Each wing has two rooms. The first room in a wing closest to the central area of the museum is valued at three. The three value room opens up into the five value room that is farther out in the wing. And then each wing has a room beside it and it's value two. And this wing opens up into either both wings, uh, one on either side of the value room, the value two room. So hopefully that gives you a little picture of what the museum looks like. The twos are kind of like hallways, if you think of it as hallways connecting, connecting the big point value exactly. ones around the outside. So that's kind of important because cube placement inside the museum is the main the portion <laughs> of this game. So I wanted you to kind of understand what that looked like. Um, and then last but not least, there's a summary of the patrons on the board. So you get a picture of the five patrons, a little synopsis of what their special ability is, and then each patron also has a symbol. Um, and that becomes important, important later on the game. I want to also mention that I think this might be the goofy part of the game. <laughs> the patrons have strange names like Lady Violet, Lord Lemon, Sir Brown, Mrs. Blackmore, and Colonel Tangerine. It just kind of makes you want to scream. Uh, Lady Violet did it in the exhibit hall with the... I don't know with lead the pipe. with the lead pipe exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of the names are kind of goofy, but neat little game. So moving on in the components, um, you get thirty six terrain slash patron tiles. These are double sided tiles. The terrain is on one side, on that particular side, um, it's divided into six squares. In the very center is also a cartouche that's going to show you how much this tile is worth. In, um, excuse me, in prestige points if you were to win it, and it also has one of the patron symbols. That symbol is telling you which patron is on the reverse side of that card. So if you win the card, you know which patron you're going to win by getting this card. You also get 100 wooden cubes. These are your workers. Um, there's patron markers, one for each patron, and player markers, two for each player. So going on to the setup, after you choose the color that you want to be, you're going to place one of your markers on the zero space of the score track. You're going to hold the other one in front of you to use to put on the passing track. And we'll talk about how that works a little later too. 
um, all the workers, the little wooden cubes, get placed beside the board, and this is the general supply. And we'll be talking about getting your personal supplies in a minute. So basically, each game is divided into four seasons or rounds, and then each season is subdivided into three phases. The phases are the new season, where you're basically going to set up this round, the excavation, where you're going to deploy your workers out to those land tiles, and the survey, where you're actually going to claim those land slash patron tiles and or get to put little cubes in the museum finally. So let's go to the first thing, the new season. The important thing about this is this is where you will construct the region in which you're going to be putting out your little wooden workers. And since the little tiles are double-sided, you're going to have to put them in some type of opaque container and mix them up in there so you can't see them. Draw two out at a time at random. Um, those two will be placed together, and they, those two land tiles placed together will form an area. Then two more will go beside it two more underneath it, and two more beside the two that you just laid, in effect creating a grid of four two-tile areas. Four squares, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> four separate squares. You leave some space in between them so you can differentiate between each area because it is, in fact, each one of these areas that you're trying to exert the most influence in to win one of the tiles in that area. But you don't put them too far apart because they are in fact adjacent to each, all the areas are adjacent to each other. Mm -hmm. So once you understand how the game is played, you'll realize how you can move cubes you know, from one to another. Not move them, but how you can extend your lines from one area to another. Um, the other important thing is that the setup is when you're, each person is going to receive their personal stock of workers. And the number of cubes you're going to get varies you know, based on the number of people playing, I think in a three-player game, we each got 11. Yes, that's and right. And in a four-player game, you're going to get eight. So you'll pull, pull those over to you, and those are your personal stock. So we get to the really important phase, and that's the excavation phase. In this, there are four possible actions that you can take, and the way that it works is the first player takes one action, then the next player takes an action, so on and so forth, around the table, and it keeps going around the table until all but one player have passed. At that point, the player is the, the last player who has not passed gets one more action, and then this phase is over and we move to the next phase. So here's the actions. You can start a new excavation. You can extend an excavation you've already started. You can pass, or you can appeal to a patron. Starting a new excavation is simple. Take one of your wooden cubes, put it in one of the squares on one of the cards in one of the areas. Now, some of these spaces have little pyramids on them. They block you from putting on your cubes. The only other limitation is there can only be one cube per square. Um, so that's that one's really easy. Extending an excavation is where I think the strategy gets really crazy yeah. because now you get to place two cubes. The only rules are they have to be adjacent to cubes you already have on there. So the first of the two cubes that you extend with will be next to one that's already on the board. The second will have to be next to the one that you just placed in extending your excavation. And in this way, not only are you able to try to have the most cubes in there, there's kind of like a sub-game where you can block your opponents from being able to get their cubes on and actually extend your excavations from one area into another area. So it's a really cool little mechanic. The third action is passing. Pretty simple. Um, if you think your situation is good, there's nothing 
you need, you no longer need to take any actions. You just put your little passing chip up on the, the lowest numbered available spot on the passing track. You also might have to pass if you're out of cubes and <laughs> can't do anything. Um, and then the fourth and final thing is appealing to a patron. In the first season, you won't be able to do this because you don't have any patrons yet. But once you get to the second, third, and fourth seasons, um, a patron, like I said, is on the flip side of the tile. Um, the land tiles. Once you win one of these, you'll flip it patron side up in front of you, and now for every season, you'll have use of that particular patron special ability. Um, what you'll do is you'll tap the card 90 degrees, and that will show that you've used it, and you'll get to use their abilities. Their abilities are something like you can add more, like when you take you know, create a new excavation, you'll get to do it with two cubes. Maybe you're expanding, you'll get to expand with three cubes. Maybe you'll get to build in the museum. Maybe you'll get to build on top of a pyramid. So they have all kinds of really neat little actions. R rules breakers. In, in exactly, exactly. So that's the second phase. Uh, once everybody's passed, then we move on to the third phase, which is the survey phase. Um, here is where we're actually going to find out who has exerted the most influence over each of the areas. Now, it's important that you score the areas in order. There's a specific way that you have to score them, and this actually, you have to take this into account when you're playing the game because you want to know that the order that you're going to get to possibly take the rewards. If you have the most cubes in an area, you are going to get your choice of taking one of the terrain, one of the two terrain cards in that area for yourself which is going to give you a number of prestige points that was in the cartouche in the center and the ability to have that patron special ability. Or as an option, you can place one of your cubes in the museum, in one of those rooms. The first cube that you place in a um, museum has to be in a valued two a room that's valued two or three. So you can't go straight for the You can't just go straight for one. the big five guy. After that, um, you can place a cube next to, in a room next to a room that already has one of your cubes in it. So in essence, you're attempting to start in the twos or threes and branch out. Just like the land tiles, only one cube per space in the museum. Um, and I think one thing I left out, I just went insane. One thing I left out is at the start of the game, you assign a patron to each wing of the museum. There's uh, a little right. spot. And so at the end of the game, this is going to come into play very importantly why you want your cubes in certain wings that are dedicated to certain patrons. And I'll get to that when we get to the scoring. Um, so that's if you're first place, you can take a uh, terrain tile or plop a cube in the museum. If you're in second place, you can take one of the remaining tiles, two tiles, or plop a cube in the museum. The third and fourth place people will never have a chance to put a cube in the museum. They might, however, have a chance to take a land tile if the people in first and second place opted to go for the museum and didn't take the land tiles. So that's really all there is with the survey thing. So let's just jump to the game, the game's end. There, like I said, there's four seasons. The only thing that differentiates the fourth season from the first three is the fact that you extend the size of the region that you're excavating. And instead of four areas in that, there's actually going to be six areas in the region. So yeah, I was just going to jump in and say, I mean, the, the first three rounds kind of are like the setup for the final scoring in that right. you're trying to accumulate the patrons and you're trying to manipulate your cubes in the museum so that when you get to the final round, you're going to be able to cash in in the best exactly. way possible. So that's kind of, you may score a few points in the first few rounds, so but they're not necessarily, even though they're four distinct seasons, they're not like four scoring rounds necessarily. Right. It's more you're building towards this one 
one giant bucket load of points that you're going to get at the end of right, the, exactly. the, the end only of the prestige game. points you can earn during the game are just the ones that are printed in the cartouches so as you win those. those. Right, and those are very small, two, three, four, five. Yeah, there's one five. Yeah, right. at, at the most, all all your points are basically going to come at the very end of the game. So once phase four is complete and you've played all those guys out, then you have a scoring round. Now here's what all the strategy boils down to. Um, the cubes that you placed in the museum, let's say that one wing is maybe dedicated to Lady Violet. And you will look in the four rooms that are associated with Lady, Lady Violet's wing, particular wing of the museum, and you find which space, the largest numbered space that one of your cubes occupies in that wing. At the end of the game, every Lady Violet card that you have collected throughout the game, which remember was on the flip side of the terrain tiles, will now be worth that value. So let's say your largest cube was in the um, room value 3. You had 4 Lady Violet cards. Pretty simple, 12 points just by collecting 4 of the Lady Violets. And you go through each wing one at a time, and you score everybody's patrons just like that. And in addition, there's also a bonus you can earn if you can collect at least one of each of the five patrons. Then that'll be a five-point bonus. So it's it's kind of a it's a really neat little game. It's got I'd say two or three little sub games happening into it. And yeah. the really cool thing is um, it was very very quick and easy to learn, and had quite a bit of strategy in it. So I'll let you take over and let everybody know what you thought about this guy. I, I would agree. I like I like the fact that there was a great amount of strategy for um, not a ton of time involved in learning the rules, that there was a fun element to deciding how and where you wanted to place your pieces based on how these little um, rectangular boards that make up the squares line up. I think the um, the blocking element, Francie was quick to point out, she was like, oh, it's kind of a little bit like tic-tac-toe, right. where you, you can kind of block people off, especially the pyramids are the blockers, like Dave said, and they're always at the most annoying spots for you <laughs> to be able to expand your little line. You're kind of making these little dotted lines of your cubes to connect across the world, although you could just go piecemeal here right. and there. It's, it's really up to you. That's where the strategy comes in. And some on some board layouts, you may end up wanting to kind of stretch out and kind of have a giant area of control. In other places, you may just be cherry-picking here and there with your, your things. Um, I really liked uh, the aspect of you have the two things in each of the areas, and but you're going to get your choice of which of the two. You might have all of your cubes on one of the things, so it's easy to, strategically to think, oh, well, he must be wanting all the things that are on that particular little rectangular one, when in fact, if that person ends up with a majority, it may be that he actually wants, wants the, the other, other one. one. Right. Um, so there, there's a good... You're not totally laying your cards on the table and saying just because you know that they want one of those two things, but you're not sure which one they want, or they might not want either one of them. They may just want to put cubes cube in into museum. the museum. Right. That's the one thing that uh, you can't oh. stress enough is how important it is to get your cubes in the museum early. Because even with a three-player game, I was shocked at how quickly uh, the museum fills up, and you yeah. can you can be concentrating. It's it's a nice balance, I guess, is what I'm saying between you have to have the patrons and in order to really cash out on the the points that you're going to get out of the museum. But if you don't get anything in the museum, you're just going to get one point per patron that you have. Exactly. So there's an essential need for both of them, but because it's really a limited quantity in the museum, you really have to start investing in that early. And I thought that was 
Yeah, that was can, cool. Because that, that's what happened to me is I started collecting the patrons early mm-hmm. on, but I didn't get quite as many cubes as I needed in the museum. And there towards the end, I realized, oh, wow, these patrons are going to be worth stuff, but the other three that I have, <laughs> nothing, nine, nada. Yep. <laughs> but because uh, only, what, four rooms per patron, basically? Right. You know, at tops, and <laughs> it's great. And every time you win a specific area, you really want it because the abilities are cool enough. You know, what I might not have mentioned before is, you know, if you get, you know, four of the Lady Violet cards, that means each round you're going to get to use her ability four times. You know, you have to tap a card to show you've used it, but you can you can only use one per action, you know, on your turn. But in a whole entire phase, you can use every single patron card you have. I, I thought an interesting balance to that, too, because you might, that might lead you to think that, the person who just gets out to a huge lead with all the patrons is going to be at a huge advantage over other players. But having those 11 cubes that is your stock, all the special abilities have to do with how you put or manipulate the cubes right. on the board that Dave and Francie both ended up jumping to a huge lead over me in terms of the numbers of patrons. But what happens is they end up with most of their cubes on the board before me and end up having to pass more quickly right. than I do. Or it gives me a chance to, they, they sort of, I can see where they're going to concentrate their effort. Exactly. So I can say, oh, well, if I went in there, I can see, oh, they only have two left. So now I could, you know, horn in and maybe finish in second place or first place because I know I have enough cubes left and the spots to put them down. So it, it's an advantage to have those patrons, but it doesn't. it's not an overwhelming advantage. The, right. the nice balance of you have a limited quantity of, of cubes, no matter how many patrons you have, to, to be able to swap things I, around. I, I think I ended the game with over 10 patrons and lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, point, can't point, or, uh, case in point. But uh, what else was I going to say? There was um, What I thought was really cool is that if you wanted to make sure that you threw cubes in the museum early on and you get into a number five, then you kind of show everybody, okay, he's got five points for every single Lord Livermore purple whatever that you collect. <laughs> so now everybody knows to keep your butt away from those tiles where you can claim those. So it's you know this really fine balance of collect, you know, getting your cubes in the museum without showing too much of your strategy, you know, and you obviously have to collect the patrons or they're not going to be worth anything. Yeah, it bears mentioning, I guess the one knock I have on this game is not the theme per se, but how the theme is incorporated into the game. Right. That, you know, this game could have been just you could have stripped every Egypt Egyptian thing out of this game and it would have been just as fun. And to me, if you're going to go the effort of making this nice theme, that what that they didn't take that one less st- last step. Right. And find a way to actually make that theme a part of the game instead of just pasted onto the top of it. You know, the the pieces and the components all look nice right. and all, you know, do add a nice sort of flavor to the game, but it's it's a flavor that washes away like a sticky yeah. gum in two seconds. It's, you it's don't gone. feel like you're in Egypt digging it, for anything or displaying really cool lost artifacts in a museum. It's just outright abstract Place my cubes here. Move them here. Complete. You know, as a, the game as a mental exercise is really a fun, nice challenge. Right. But you know, when you're sitting down to this game that sort of advertises itself as this other thing, I don't feel like it delivered 
as well as it probably could have or should have I on, agree. on that level. And that, that just bears, that's really not, I don't think that's going to affect your enjoyment of the game if you like abstract strategy games, but it's a warning if you are going into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a great Egyptian game right. that I can play with all these other kind of Egyptian-themed games. Not. Probably want to look elsewhere um, if that's what really attracts you to this game and that's that's the kind of number one thing on your list. Maybe this isn't necessarily the the best one for you, but um, oh, we had something about the components. What was it? Oh, the score track. Um, Absolutely. That that was just a totally little nitpicky thing, right. but just was a head scratcher. Yeah, your I little thought. player tokens, which are basically just cardboard discs, are too big for the scoring track. <laughs> you once you if you put it on one of the spaces on the scoring track, it covers up half the space before it. And after it, yeah, <laughs> which is just impossible. Either, I mean, why not just include an extra wooden cube right, that you exactly. could have just put on the thing or make the counters small enough so that they don't, you know, do have that right. problem. That I think that's what like I'll do is just throw a, scratcher. you know, an extra wooden cube of that type. And if you run out, then you can use it. But <laughs> the, the, the thing that's really cool about this game is that this, is, this was the third game from Yastari. Mm-hmm. And this was... I mean, three home runs as far as I'm concerned. I mean, really good little games. Yeah. You know, with their first three games with uh, Yis. Um, what's Yis the second Fahan. one? Yis Fahan? No, that's, that's the or fourth. that's the new one. No, yeah, that's, that's right. the newest one. That's, this excites that me to go out and get that because very, it's very rare to have a game company have, you know, only three games out, four now. Yeah. And have them all be excellent. You know, yeah. the ones we've played. So I can't, I really can't wait to try that last one. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, because what, Kalos? It's Kalos, Kalos was number two. Yes, and then and, uh, Mikarinos and, yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. I'd say the first two were home runs, and then this one's probably a ground rule double in my book, just because the theme isn't right. Quite, the other ones, the theme is definitely worked into the game that, I, in a way that this one isn't, but they're all really strong, right, strong exactly. games. Right, exactly. I totally agree with you, the theme, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't detract from the quality of the game. The no. gameplay was so amazing that I, you know, even though it's obviously not nearly as, you know, intricate game as the other two, <laughs> I think maybe for that reason alone, you know, it's really cool. Yeah. If you want to feel like you're playing something cool like Kalos or Yes, but you want to do it in that 45 minute span of time, yeah, this is very cool. Yeah, I think it could even play faster than that it, once you know the rules. That's true. Probably half hour, I would say, it could play pretty dang quick. The one, the, I remember one mechanic thing that I wanted to bring up too, just before we go on to the next one, is what did you think of the? You have your personal stock and the whatever the the public stock of of little cubes. It right. seemed like the public stock is kind of an under underutilized mechanic in the game because right. there's only one you you can take when you put your cubes in the museum they come from in the, the general scoring, stock. it comes from the general stock right. instead of your personal stock since they went out of the way to do that you would think that there would be a way that that might be empty at some times and you might risk the chance of not being able to put something in the museum but i don't see in how our that's, experience that didn't i seem don't to see happen. how that's possible i can see how you obviously would run out of cubes in your personal stock, mm-hmm. right? And you wouldn't be able to use some of the patron special abilities, but um, I think it might have been cooler to have, when you put the cubes in the museum, they come out of your personal stock. That would force you right. to you know, really be careful what you played out so you kept those one or two that you needed for the scoring round. Right. You know, but maybe, I don't know, we didn't play Tetsu, so maybe that lessened the quality of playing your cubes out to the... Or maybe you just made it a more complicated game right. and you were going for something that was a little more streamlined than that. Right. I just I kept thinking of El Grande. 
Right. With the how you, you have, have to manage the, the court and the the thing, and they have a mechanic there that you have to cycle the cubes in and out, and that's I think a very elegant way of you have to manage that flow from right. place to place. And I'm not saying that this game should be like El Grande. Don't get me wrong here. Right. But it just seems like if you're going to have that sort of mechanic of pool here and pool there and pieces that it doesn't seem like they fully exploited the the necessity of having those those cubes out there right. as well as they could have that still again doesn't affect your the fun you're going to have with the game but just as a analysis i guess of, right. of no, I, how I totally getting trying to get in the brain of the game designer that exactly. was something that occurred to me it probably didn't exist for any other reason other than to limit on a turn by turn or round by round basis, the number of cubes that everybody had available. Yeah, I you bet know, you're right. Of course, you could opt to not spend them all in one round and have some saved for the next round, but that still doesn't change what's <laughs> in the general pool. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> cool. Well, that was, I thought that was a really fun little game. Um, Mikarinos, once again, was the first game off the list. I would definitely recommend it, especially if you're an abstract strategy gamer. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one, is a really cool one for a great price. Which takes us to number two off the list. Now <laughs> yep. for something completely different. <laughs> yep. <laughs> completely different and yet kind of similar on, on a little level in that it's a light, abstract strategy game. A little more chaotic and crazy <laughs> than Micarinos. So we have Marvin's... <laughs> I knew I was going to screw it up. I practiced <laughs> it. Marvin Marvel's Marvelous Marble Machine. Better you than S- me. Second try, I got it. <laughs> so... Um, Marvin Marvel's Marvelous Marble Marble Machine was designed by Greg Lamb in 2005. Pair of Dice Games is the publisher. It's for two to six players. Um, The game rules say it plays in an hour. I would say once you know this game, it plays in way less than that. I would say probably half an hour, maybe even 15, 20 minutes, I would think. It's very, but that's not any smack on the game. That's just having played it a couple times here, I think that's just a more accurate representation of how long it would take to play. (laughs) <laughs> so, of course, he's got this great uh, little bit of setup text here that I'm going to try to try to get through, <laughs> try to uh, not laugh at me if I stumble. <laughs> Marvin Marvel from Marblehead, Massachusetts, makes the most magnificent marbles from Maine to Mogadishu. Making use of his masters in macroeconomics from McAllister, Marvin has merited his moniker, the Marble Maestro, Master of Marble Manufacturing. In mid-May... Marvin's most meritorious machine must make its maiden run. Marvin's minions have assembled a massive marble-making miracle, making use of the most modern methods. There's merely one minor mishap. It didn't come with assembly instructions. Now, will Marvin's meddling middle managers mangle the manufacturing methods, making mass mayhem merely to mess up the machine and monopolize marble manufacturing, making themselves much money and the moniker of the newly minted monarch of monu of marble manufacturing. Maybe. <laughs> wow. Woo. Woo. <laughs> Good thing I had diction classes yeah, in, in yeah. college. <laughs> Didn't you say that uh, you thought this designer should be related to Friedman Freeze? Yes, I totally did. <laughs> they must be. Uh, they must have been separated at birth, exactly. I think. <laughs> so, um, Marvin's, Marvin Marvel's Marvelous Marble Machine is... I think uh, the best way to describe it in a nutshell is sort of a, a modular, more wacky and chaotic robo rally to right. give you an idea of the kind of game that this is. Just off 
off the bat here. Um, let's go over the components, though, before we get right into the game. So you're going to get a cloth board that's got screen printed on it, this sort of hexagonal map that's going to be where that is the machine, the marble machine. So you're all these middle managers that are trying to get all the marbles sorted to your particular area in the game. And so because it's a hexagon, you have different goals on each of the sides of the board. And depending upon the number of people playing, you're going to have you know, one goal, two goals, three goals, um, you're going to split them up basically depending upon the number of people that you're playing, um, that you're trying to get the marbles directed in your way so you collect the most marbles by the end of the game. That's the cloth board. There are wooden uh, tiles that represent um, three different things. Some of them represent marbles. Um, they all have stickers on them. Um, that represent what the, the different tiles are or do. Um, so there are marble tiles, machine part tiles, and then modifier tiles um, that are going to get um, played on the board um, at different points in the game. And there's a six-sided die. So it's very sort of compact. You could easily, this would be a great travel game. You could easily Absolutely. throw. It's got a little drawstring bag for the things. Throw it in your backpack and and throw down a little Marvin's marble machine anytime <laughs> you want. Um, like I just said, the object of the game is to collect the most marbles by moving, by manipulating your marbles into your area of the, the board. Um, the turn is very, very simple. You've got basically one of two choices on your turn. You're going to either play one tile or two tiles. Um, and here's the way you determine which you're going to do. If you play a marble, on you, as your first move, then you have an option to play either another marble or a machine tile. If you, if you decide on your first move you want to play a machine tile or a modifier tile, then that's all you're going to get to do. Um, the marbles themselves have an arrow indicating their orientation and they have a number which indicates their speed. So if you put a marble, if you choose to put a marble on the board, um, at the first, the first time you put a marble on, there aren't any other marbles, so you're just going to put it on and it's going to move at the very, very beginning of the game. Any successive turn after that, if you choose as your first move to place a marble, you're going to pick it up. There's a little on-deck circle right. on the side of the board that indicate the six sides of the, the, the map, and you're going to put your little marble there and indicate which way you want that marble to come out of the home space. There's a home space in the middle of the machine, and that's where all the marbles in this machine are going to start on their crazy journey towards the sides of the board. Um, the uh, marbles that you place on the board from previous turns are always going to move first. So you say, I'm going to move a marble. You look at the board, and you're going to move the marbles that are on the board first, and then you're going to put your marble on and move it. We'll get to the machine parts here in just a second. <laughs> so that, that basically gives you an idea of, of the marble. You put a marble on, then you have a choice of either putting a second marble on or doing the machine part. Now, the machine parts are all, this is where the craziness happens. Right. For any of you who might be familiar with uh, the game RoboRally, you have in that game, you have robots on a factory floor, and there are things like conveyor belts and stompers and pushers and lava pits, all sorts of wacky little machines that will affect the way your robot moves, but they're set on the board. In Marvin's Marvelous Marble Machine, you've got tiles that represent these same kind of, of machinery. There are pushers and sorters and twisters, all sorts of wacky things that are going to happen to the marbles on their way through the machine, but you get to decide where they go on the board. So 
you put the machine tile on the board, you may want to, you may do it to try to help redirect marbles in your direction, or you may do it to <laughs> totally, you know, he thinks, oh, that marble's headed straight from my side of the board. You're going to put a little reverse token down. So the marble hits that space and it's going to whoop, its orientation is going to turn, you know, 180 degrees and come back the opposite direction. Uh, there, I'm not going to go into every single last <laughs> tile, but there's a, there's a lot of different machines that do all sorts of fun and wacky stuff. Some of them involve the dice that allow you to roll the die and um, will do random things like you know it goes in but then it pops out think of them I like to think of the marble machine kind of like a big pinball machine right. that you know your little ball bearings kind of going in somewhere and then some wacky thing happens and it's going to come shooting out in some other you know right. direction in my brain that's just how I imagine it um, which is just kind of fun to, to see on the board even though the components aren't necessarily you know super duper fantastic it right. gives you once the the board kind of gets built out you can kind of imagine how this machine is sort of coming together as the game goes on uh, the machine parts themselves like I said do all those different things the last type of tile that you can play is a modifier tile and these types of tiles allow you to move machine parts that are already on the board or take one off the board or swap two that are on the board so nothing is set in stone even when it comes to the machinery the machinery can actually move and again if you play one of those tokens um, you can only play one of those if it's your first move and then your turn's going to be over and the next person's going to get to go when you play a machine part um, you're only going to play one per space you can, however, play it underneath a marble that's already on the board, which I think is really cool. Very cool. So if you do that, it's going to immediately affect whatever marble you put it under. So there's another strategy involved in terms of deciding where you might want to play your marbles to either help your own or to screw up somebody else's marble. No one really owns the marbles. I, I, can, right. I guess I keep saying them, but you can tell if somebody puts a marble on and is directing it towards their little goal. In my mind, it's sort of their marble because right. they, they think they're counting on getting that one. So you might say, well, that's not going to be yours at all. <laughs> it's going my direction. So that's the basic flow of the game. You're going to play a marble and then play something else. Or play, or play a machine part and then a modifier. The craziness comes in how, once you get a few marbles and a few of these tiles on the board, how just the wacky combinations, okay, my marble's gonna, uh, go one space, turn left, get pushed over, hit a wall, jump over this way. Uh, it's just really fun to see. It's, it's not, there's strategy involved in how you play these things out, but there is definitely an element of chaos that, Absolutely. To, to me, is the one of the strengths of the game in terms of how you're going to go about laying the, laying the different tiles out and trying to get your marbles directed toward your things. Last two things before I let Dave weigh in with his <laughs> thoughts here. Um, a clarification that we got um, from Greg um, is in terms of how the marbles move, when, they move, when any marble hits a machine tile it's affected by that machine tile. So if, if it, at any point, if you have a speed three marble and on its first move, it hits a pusher, it's going to get pushed and then continue on uh, moving along its way. Um, and the last thing that he said that a lot of people forget is the sort of final phase of the game. So you're going to go through this whole process of playing marbles and playing tiles until someone reaches their initial quota, which is determined by the number of players. In uh, the case of our games that we played, we were playing with three people, so it was six. So the first person to reach six marbles doesn't win the game, but initiates the kind of final phase of the game. So the minute that that quota is reached, 
It's as though someone has shut the machine off. So you can't add parts to it. You can't add marbles to it. Um, but all the marbles on the board are going to take their routes and, and continue moving in the speeds that they move um, until they either reach someone's goal or they get caught in an endless loop <laughs> where they keep getting pushed and, and pulled and go around there. So that can either happen, this final round, again, can either happen by reaching this quota of marbles or if you get to the end where there are no tiles left to draw. So if there are no marbles and no machine parts left even on in the draw piles, then the machine shuts down. You see where those final marbles are going to lay out, and then you count up the marbles, and the person with the most marbles is going to be the, the what do they call it? The newly minted monarch of marble manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, give me your thoughts, Dave. What, do you, what, what did you think? I thought this was a fun little game. Obviously, when you first get it out and you see the components, they're not, you know, these gorgeous, amazing components that you're used to with the Euro-style games. However, the game mechanics itself are really cool. Just like you said before, this would be an awesome light beer and pretzels type of thing that is going to be different every single time you play it. Since basically the machine starts blank and you're going to construct the machine, you have no idea. And the zany stuff that we came up with, <laughs> oh man, yeah, like that one that like automatically pushed it, flipped it around, jumped it over here, and then it came to a fork where you had to roll a die. And at that fork, it was a 50-50 chance whether it went to Steven or whether it went to me. Let's just say that it always went to Steven. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, was ins- it was insane, but um, definitely, definitely a cool little game. I, I love uh, just the way he's taken. It really does feel like like one of those little pachinko machines or something yes. like that. Oh, that's, that a good, it's that's a good analogy, These marbles too. getting deflected and flying <laughs> all over here and everything. It was I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> I, the one thing I forgot to mention about the board, too, is that the goal areas are separated by separators. So they're actually spots that are not one specific person's goal. And if the marble ends up there, there's a little thing that says even and a little thing that says odd screen printed on the little separator. So if the marble ends up getting shot down one of those pathways, then you roll a die and it determines which which side exactly. it gets. The even gets one and the odd gets the other. And Dave, I think <laughs> probably half the marbles Francie and I got, we got because they went down the stupid <laughs> separator and you're like, okay, I need an even, odd. Okay, I need an odd, even yeah. <laughs> every single time. But, you know, there's definitely, I love that element of chaos. Right. In it. If you know going in, you're not going to expect that kind of exactly. brain-hurting uh, abstract strategy. But to me, that's kind of cool that you can have a game that is an abstract strategy game that still incorporates this element of, exactly. of chaos into it in a really fun and entertaining way. I, and I think I like that little <laughs> in-game thing where, you know, the game doesn't end when somebody gets six marbles. It it triggers the end, and then everything on the board has to take its natural course, you know. And at that point, there, you know, somebody may have six, somebody may have four, somebody may have five, but there may be ten marbles on the board. Yeah. And until those run off, we don't know what the final totals are going to be. And unless you're some real like puzzle savant, you're not going to be able to look at it and go, "Well, oh, I should obviously win the game because of right. the way things are laid out." <laughs> I, I know that um, in our game, Stephen had. You triggered it, correct? No, Francie Francie, did. Francie, Francie did. triggered it. She got her sixth marble. And I had five. At that point in time, I had the goose egg. <laughs> By the time we let the marbles finish running the course, I had four. <laughs> I went from the goose for the whole game to four just at the end by letting the marbles take their natural course. And I think I ended up winning because yeah. of the marbles left on the board, yeah. too. So th- that was really cool. I think the way that the the end is not written in stone just because you trigger the end game doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to win. Right. 
Um, I like your little, your suggestion for a slight modification to add like maybe an advanced set right. to the rules with the little modifier tokens. You want to? Yeah, I think that the modifiers were great. There's a very few of them. I think maybe seven or eight of them mm-hmm. in the game. I think it'd be really cool if every player had their own set and you got those at the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. And so instead of being in the bag with the machine parts, everybody would have a full set and you would know that once you use your little swap tokens, that's it. You're never going to be able to swap machine parts again. But you have the ability but to do it. Exactly. You know that from the get-go, everybody started on even playing ground. So it just brings a little more element of strategy rather than that complete luck of what type of those things you're drawing. Mm-hmm. And I think that'd be that'd be really cool. Only have to you know include a few extra tiles in. Right. Not, there's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with the game at all. But to add that element of like an advanced. Yeah, it'd feature. be an easy advanced thing right. to, to add to it that would yeah. just add another le- element to the game. Exactly. Which I that that sounded cool. To me, I, I would think that I like the pair of dice model sort of slightly above like cheap ass in like right. the level of, of complexity and, and kind of game. But, you know, I couldn't help but imagining, you know, wondering if, if Greg oh. had thought about, you know, pitching these things to like bigger manufacturers just because of the nature of this specific one, not necessarily right. some of his other dice based games, but you could see this one doing very well in some sort of right. really high end component kind of Absolutely. things too. And that's just, you know, the Goobermeister and is saying that you could couple this this theme and this kind of game with really interesting components and that would just add a, another level yeah this could be a gorgeous game <clears throat> absolutely is this um how kind of how much do you remember the value um it's i think it runs six seventeen ninety five sixteen ninety five oh, okay. okay because of the wood pieces and the, okay. and the board and thing which i think is a decent value for for what you get really and is this paradise's like most recent no, they've had um, the the chopstick challenge is, uh, is okay. I think their most recent uh, uh, okay. game, but it, it's one of their more recent. And this one I think was a notable uh, Games One Hundred. Oh, okay. Uh, so that it's getting that they te- hit all of his games get really strong reviews on places like Board Game Geek and other places like that. And and the ones that we've tried so far, I think we've been yeah, yeah su- fun, suitably impressed with. So um, unless uh, you have anything else to add, I think we've we've met the list this week we've got no but i think you should say the name of the game one more time oh yes okay <laughs> marvin marvel's marvelous marble machine <laughs> we're gonna have words greg lamb if you keep doing these alliterative <laughs> titles <laughs> so so check it out Backshelf spotlight these games need some love and we're going to give it to them the Backshelf spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So, episode 24's mystery connection was between Caesar and Cleopatra and Zauber Cocktail. Um, Dave, fill us in on on the guesses we've had since last we delved into the backshelf spotlight. Cool. Well, we did get a lot of response on this one. Unfortunately, none of them were those really off-the-wall, crazy, fun guesses that we usually read to you guys. Most of all of our guesses included the guess that both these games were part of a Cosmos series of games. Obviously, Zalber Cottel being the games for many, and Caesar and Cleopatra being the games for two. <laughs> so we've taken all those names. We've got our little pair of <laughs> spiel dice here ready. We're going to roll them and see who's going to be the big winner. Here we go. 
Let's and the winner is... Looks like Mathen in Virginia. I can hear him hooting and hollering (laughs) all the way from Virginia. (laughs) He's been trying long and hard for uh, many months to win these dice. I think Mathen might be the only listener that has had guesses sent to us every single episode. I don't don't know that he's missed an episode. That might be true. So if if only for sheer volume, Mathen. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's getting desperate too because like this last time, what, one of his guesses was both games are smaller than a bread box. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's been playing a little too much 20Q. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but congratulations, Mathen. We'll be in touch soon to get your... uh, your postal address and send you the the coveted pair of steel dice that you have earned for playing the Backshelf Spotlight game. So remember, we play this game every week. Uh, there's a connection going to be between the two games that we talk about in the Backshelf Spotlight, and uh, the the two games this week are Balloon Cup and Space Beans. <laughs> Obvious connection. Yeah. No problem at all. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody will hit this one out of the park. I think we forgot to tell everybody what the connection was. The real connection. Oh crap! You know, you're right. I'm just <laughs> totally freaking out. That's funny. I'm trying to remember if I remember the connection. <laughs> Do you remember it? Yeah. You don't remember it. You picked it. I did pick it. It had something to do with artists, I believe. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I totally spaced that already. Okay, so the real connection that we thought everybody would get because it was finally not one of our sick, twisted, weird, stupid connections, but actually a real connection was the fact that both the games had all the artwork was done by the same artist, and that was Franz Vowinkle. So how how cool is that? We actually make a real connection, finally... (laughs) And nobody gets that one. So I say it's back to the goofy stuff. Yep. <laughs> okay. Enough with the easy connections. Exactly. exactly. So we already know what the two games are in this week's Spotlight. So I'll throw it back to Stephen to start the first one. Back back to the plan here. So uh, Balloon Cup is the first uh, game in the Backshell Spotlight. It was um, published in 2003. Stephen Glenn is the designer. Uh, it was Cosmos in Germany and Rio Grande Games in, in America were the publishers. It's a two-player game. It's in the Cosmos two-player game series. It's about 30 minutes uh, for the game. So um, it actually won a Best Two-Player Card Game uh, Award by Games Magazine in 2004, which I think is noteworthy because yeah. I would say, actually, this is my f- favorite. Oh, it might surprise cool. you, but actually I cool. think this is my favorite of all the Cosmos two-player games. So in Balloon Cup, um, you're competing over several short balloon flights or hops to collect the colored cubes that are associated with that particular hop to get the, the trophies um, that are basically the, the object of the game. You're trying to get three of these trophies, okay, and that's how cool. you win the game. Um, you have four of these little hop tiles that you're going to lay out in front of you, uh, a number one, a number two, a number three, and a number four. Each They're double-sided. One of them has sort of a low valley sort of side, and the other one has kind of a high mountain side to it. Um, you're going to lay those out in the center of the board, and you're going to get cards um, in your hand. I believe you get eight uh, to start out the game. Um, and the cards have the different um, colors of the wooden cubes. It wouldn't be a Cosmos <laughs> uh, Euro-style game if we didn't have wooden cubes. So you're going to get a bag of these wooden cubes of, uh, let's see, five different colors. Um, there's red, blue, green, yellow, and gray. The interesting thing about these cubes is they're not in equal proportion. Um, they're a lot more red, um, all the way sort of skewing down to the gray, and you have the least amount of the gray. Um, 
on the turn, on the way this game is going to play out is you're going to put out cubes onto these tiles in the middle and you're basically vying for these cubes and the cubes are kind of the currency in this game that you're going to use to buy the trophies. And the trophies, sort of like the, the, um, amounts of the cubes are, re- are color coded and are related to the numbers of cubes you have to spend uh-huh. to get them. So there's a red trophy and it costs red, uh, seven red cubes to get it. Likewise, all the way at the other end of the spectrum, there's a gray trophy and it costs three. But remember, there are less gray cubes than there are red cubes. So there's your begin, you should be beginning to see the kind of strategy involved in this game. So again, you got the four tiles. You're going to start the, the number one is going to start on the low land, number two on the high, number three on the low, number five on the, or number five. <laughs> number five. <laughs> and the number shall be three. <laughs> so one, two, three, four, not five. <laughs> um, so alternating basically high, low, high, cool. low. Interestingly enough, the high-low also indicates the strategy that you're going to use to play your cards onto the board. The cards that you're going to get with the game are all color-coded, just like the cubes, to the colors and have numbers on them. Um, the numbers, you're going to play those cards onto the board opposite the two tiles, opposite all four of the tiles, but the numbers, remember I said there's number one, number two, number three, and number four, that indicates the number of cards that are going to be played in competition on either side of this particular tile. The high and low thing. Here's the here's the coolest part about this game. The high and low thing indicates what you're trying to do on a particular hop. If you're on a low one, you want your total to be the lowest possible total of the cards that you're playing. Uh-huh. On the high one, opposite, you want to play and have your total of cards be the highest number. Now, like I said, you're gonna put out t- you're gonna put out cubes in accordance to the number on the tile. So the number one tile is gonna get one cube, two for the two, three for the three, four for the four. You can only play cards that are the same color as the tiles or the, the, the cubes. cubes that are uh-huh. on that tile. So you you know you may want that gray tile that's on. Uh, cube that's on tile number one, but you may not have any gray cards in your hand and you're just, you can't do it. The the other really interesting thing about the game is you don't have to play cards on your side of the board. So if you can see, oh, well, I need to be the low man on that tile number one. I have, and let's say there's a gray cube, like the example we just used, and I have a gray 10 in my hand, Hmm. I could choose on my turn to play that gray 10 on Dave's side of the board, ensuring that maybe on a future turn when I'm drawing up, if I I just need to get something that's lower than a gray 10, once uh, the card requirement is met on a particular tile, then it's scored. The winner is determined by the rules of that particular tile. If it's a low, you look and see the low, and that person wins those cubes. Obviously, at the beginning, you're not going to have necessarily enough cubes to buy a trophy right off the bat. But as you go along, you're going to accumulate more cubes. And then, it, correspondingly, you're going to be able to spend those cubes to buy the different trophies. Last but not least, remember I said the tiles are double-sided. So whenever you finish scoring a particular hop on, let's say, that one we were doing with the, the gray cube with the low, and I won that gray cube, when you finish scoring it, you flip the tile to the other side, and it becomes the mountains, which is the high, and is going to go, you draw a new, to- a new cube, put it out on the board, and the game continues basically as such. I think it's just an elegant little game. I love the strategy of being able to to play cards on opposite sides of the board and the flipping of the victory conditions right. between the different tiles. 
I would just totally encourage you to, to seek this one out. If you need a quick, and it's fast too. You can, it it's is. portable, it's fast. There's a nice amount of strategy in it. Um, it's cream of the crop for, for two-player games as far as I'm concerned. Cool. <laughs> that brings us to number two in the spotlight, which is Space Beans. It was published by Amigo and Rio Grande in 1999. It was designed by Uwe Rosenberg. It's for two to six players, ages 10 and up. Unfortunately, this great little card game is out of print. Ugh. And I spent some time looking for it. It's pretty tough to find. Um, I'm going to read you the little story that's kind <laughs> of included at the very beginning of these rules. It's very fun. So it's Space, the Infinite Bean Field. <laughs> these are the adventures of the Galactic Bean Traders. Light years distance from Earth, they enter bean fields, which no one has harvested before. <laughs> In the end, the trader with the most valuable space beans will become the ruler of the beaniverse. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is just so funny. <laughs> so, yes, this is the little brother of Bonanza. And this game gets a lot of grief for not being as good as Bonanza. Yes, they did strip out the trading mechanic, which makes Bonanza so cool. But does that make this a crappy game? No, no it just no, makes it a different game. So I just want to get my little two cents in there <laughs> that I don't agree with everybody. And I think this game definitely has its place and is a fun little game. So it's a card game. I think there's about 105 cards that comes with seven suits. The suits are not only colors, but they're themed towards classic and popular sci-fi movies and television series. So you've got the Star Wars suit, the Star Trek suit, the <laughs> alien suit, and my favorite has to be the Battlestar Galactica suit. <laughs> yeah. Because this is Space Bean, so on each one of the Battlestar Galactica cards, there is a Lauren Green Bean. <laughs> Which, that's worth the whole game yeah. right, right there. <laughs> so basically, um, there's a couple neat mechanics. Um, Space Bean's at the beginning, you're going to get dealt three cards. On your turn, you're going to have an option to draw two cards at the start of your turn, and then you're going to have the option to play a card or cards into one of your bean fields. Bean fields are these imaginary spots on the table where you're going to get to start playing sets of cards. Um, you can only play one or more cards to one bean field per turn. So at the very beginning, you're going to need to start a bean field. So you can pick, maybe you have a couple red cards, you can go ahead and sow a couple red cards into that first bean field. The first bean field is always going to be face up. On a later turn, uh, when it comes back to you, you have the option now of playing more red cards into that original bean field you started, or you can start a second bean field. This bean field is face down or secret, so your opponents can't see what kind of beans you're planting in there. So if you play a card or cards to one of your bean fields, your turn is over. Here's the fun part. You pass all the rest of the cards in your hand to the next player. You <laughs> don't get to keep any of your cards. That's wacky yeah, and cool. Yeah, it's just <laughs> totally insane. And obviously the person you're passing them to, they had to do that on their turn, so they have no cards until you pass them cards. So they have to decide, you know, can I do something with the cards that were just passed to me, or I, do I need to draw? The problem with drawing is... You know, maybe you're not going to have anything to play, which means you're even feeding more cars to the next player. So it's kind of crazy. Um, the, the weird situation comes up when you have your hand of cards, you've either drawn or not drawn, now you're ready to put some beans in your bean fields, and you don't have any beans that matches the color of either your face-up bean field or your face-down bean field. Now you're in trouble because you have to play a card. Since you can't play it to one of these, you're going to be forced to convert 
your face-up bean field. Now, this is good and it's bad because the only way you can get points is to convert your bean field. The problem is most of the time you're going to be converting your bean fields and they're not going to be worth anything at all. So how is a bean field worth something? If one of the cards in that bean field, if its value matches the total number of cards in that bean field, then it's worth that many points. So let's say you have five cards in your bean field and one of those cards is a value five card. It is then worth five points when you decide to go ahead and convert that bean field. You just keep the five card, place it off to the side so you know that you've now scored five points. And once you've converted that face up one, now your face down bean field has to become your face up one so you do that, Exposing you expose it. it, and now on a future turn, you'll be able to start another secret bean field. It's just that simple. It's like, play a card. If I can't play a card, convert. If you can convert, score. Maybe not score. Pass all the cards to the next player. The first player to get 30 points um, triggers the end of the game. Um, that person will get a three-point bonus, and then whoever has the most, because everybody else, even though they've triggered the end of the game, any cards they have in front of them in their bean fields, they get a chance to convert those. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the person who got the 31st is going to win, although that's most often the case. Mm -hmm. It's not guaranteed. So I really, this is one of those little card games that I have been able to convince some family and relatives to play who they are absolutely not gamers. Mm -hmm. So this this game for me gets really, really high marks because I can get non-gamers to sit down and play this with me. Especially when the theme is so goofy oh, yeah. and the cards could easily go, oh, that doesn't look like a game that would appeal right. to me. I didn't know that you you tried that out on yeah, some of your yeah. family and, and had good success with it, so that's and, cool. And they're not even sci-fi fans or anything. Yeah, yeah. And they still comment on the, I mean, how can you not love... They wharf, you know, backlift wielding bean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the cards are just insane. Well, obviously, have pictures on the enhanced version, so right. you can see all, all the different wacky, <laughs> wacky ass beans. There's this 2001 one, right, too, with the monolith. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but so th this is a great game. Look it up, Space Beans. And remember, it has a connection to Balloon Cup, albeit a wacky one. Yep. But it is there. <laughs> So send us all your guesses. You can send it to Dave at thespiel.net or Stephen at thespiel.net and let us let us know what you think. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the goobermeisters have for us this week. So this week's uh, truckload of goober pick, I usually go for the unique component goober wise instead of the truckloads part of it but i uh this one's kind of both it's got a truckload cool. of really kind of wacky pieces <laughs> so the game is through the desert or dirk de wooster is that like pasta worcestershire sauce oh man <laughs> we're gonna get hell from all the german <laughs> german speakers out there for that one so through the desert was first published in 1998 it's uh, Reiner Knizia is the designer. Two to five players plays in about 45 minutes, and it's still widely available online. Um, so 
when I say 175 pastel plastic camels, does that get you interested in this game? Yeah, baby. <laughs> so this game is played out on a board. You're basically trying to make caravans of winding plastic camels uh, to score points in the game. It comes with 175 plastic camels that are really nicely little sculpted in these goofy sort of Easter yeah, sort of exactly. you know Easter egg colors. Um, there are 30 riders, 45 water hole counters, five plastic oasis like trees that are three dimensional, and a few point counter chips. Basically, it's kind of a modern uh, another re- retake on Go in a right. way. You're you're building these little routes. You you can actually sort of cordon off areas with oases and other areas of the board to try to keep your opponents out of them, which will um, give you points. Um, just just for the sheer sake of having a game that's got you know almost two hundred little plastic camels, I think this one is is worth worthy of mention in the in the annals of the uh, truckloads of goober history logs here. Absolutely. When I first bought this game, I bought it for no other reason <laughs> than the pastel plastic camels. I was like, I'm not a fan of plastic, but if you've got to have them, they might as well be pastel, baby. <laughs> yeah, uh, I really, uh, we aren't going to go into the rules very, very long since this is Goober rather than one of the other segments because we may revisit it on the back right. shelf at some point here because it's it's totally worthy of, of looking into it as a, as a game in its own right. But Goober is about the Goober. So exactly. uh, if you're interested in little plastic camels, uh, check out Through the Desert. Collector's Corner. There are players and there are collectors. Most people are a bit of both. From deals and databases to little plastic bags, you'll find helpful tips and tricks for organizing, protecting, and expanding your collection, whether your game closet has five titles or 500. It's a positive obsession, really. So welcome to the newest segment on the Spiel. This is the Collector's Corner. Um, we we want some input from you listeners out there. If you can come up with a catchier name, we're still working on a catchier name. So we reserve the right to change the name of this segment <laughs> in future episodes. But for now, it's going to be known as Collector's Corner, with the idea being that uh, you, as you amass these games, there's definitely something to the whole collecting aspect, the organization of your collection, just managing all the different games that you might have, whether you have you know ten games or 110 games in your collection. There are lots of different elements that can come into how you might want to expand it, or we're just going to come at that, the idea of game collecting from all different kinds of angles. So, especially since we have a a resident expert, (laughs) that not being me, (laughs) as two of the co-hosts here, um, Dave's going to take the point here with the first few since he is the resident expert. And this will be a a segment we'll probably throw in probably every three or four episodes. We'll we'll swap it out with the sommelier um don't think you're off the hook though before the end of this segment though you're going to be back on the hook Uh with the sommelier Uh so sommelier will be back next week so for the collector's corner this week um we thought it would be interesting to talk about how to unpack store inventory and organize a new game that you've just gotten into your collection so without further ado dave let's let's hear your thoughts cool well when i when i buy a game either from a brick and mortar store here in town or whether I buy it from online, the first thing I do is open it up and inspect the components to make sure everything is there. It's important that you do that right away. Once you just pop everything out and put it in a thing and start playing it, it could be a year before you notice that something's missing. So inspect it right away, 
check to make sure everything is there. If something in fact is missing, the best way to get replacements parts is actually contact the manufacturer. Now Stephen and I have so many games, trust me when I say we have contacted every manufacturer <laughs> on more than one occasion to get replacement parts either because something was missing or because something was damaged. And in every single case, okay, not every single case, yeah. in almost all cases, they were very fast, very efficient, very kind, and they got us the stuff, the replacements that we needed. The one that didn't is no longer in business. Which so we'll, we'll stop we'll that. Figure. Yeah, we'll leave that at that. But so capture components, I know it's a pain, but it's well worth it, especially we're talking about collecting, something that you're going to have around for a long time, and you want to make sure that you have everything. One thing I'll just add is, too, that it usually either on the back of the box or on the rules, there'll be a nice inventory Absolutely. sheet that you can just one for one go, oh, I'm supposed to have this many of these. Exactly. So you have that as a reference. You don't have to just count it up and then like go look online. Most games, not every, but most games have that kind of inventory right. somewhere within the game itself. O occasionally you'll run across a game that for some reason – the, the list of components doesn't seem to jive with what you got, but you seem like, well, what I got seems to be right. Something is weird. Great resource like the Geek. You can go mm -hmm. on, and, and most times there'll be some type of a thread that will say, you know, hey, in this particular case, the instructions were wrong or the back of the box was wrong. This really is what you need to get. And by the Geek, he means BoardGameGeek.com, exactly. just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so inventory your stuff as soon as you get it. Count it. Make sure it's all there. Now, the next step, once you're sure that you have everything, now, this may seem a little crazy, but I actually read the setup of the game. I Usually on the first couple pages, you know, how is this game going to be set up when I play it? And then I think about what would be the optimal way for me to organize this game in the box, knowing that when I take it out of the box, here's how it's going to be set up. So if there's 500 wooden cubes, you know, 100 of each of five different colors, and a player, each player that plays is going to get their own 100 cubes, I'm not going to throw these all in one bag because maybe there's only three of the five people playing. I certainly don't want to sort out the 200 of the extra color at the beginning of the game, so I'm going to put these each separately. So like I said, read the setup, figure out what is the best way for me to organize this game. So the first decision you're going to have to make once you've decided how it should be organized is whether to use that handy-dandy little plastic insert that comes in the box. A lot of these are really perfect for the game, and unfortunately, some of them are actually horrible for the game. <laughs> so what I usually do is if I've, I've decided how I want to store it, and I look at the insert and I put everything in there, I'm like, does this insert going to store everything the way I want it to store? If the answer is yes, then I go ahead, pop everything out, put it in, then I have one test to give it. <laughs> and that's the spine test. <laughs> so after I've got everything tucked nice and neatly in, I set the box on its so it's spined up and down. Now I lay it upside down once. Then I spine it again. Then I put it back face up. I'm not shaking it. I'm not throwing it around the room. I'm just kind of setting it in its different orientations to see if it's going to hold. Then I take the lid off, and I see if all the components stayed where they were supposed to stay. <laughs> and usually he starts crying at that yeah. point. <laughs> Very few games have been designed to actually stay put in their place. So what most most what likely is what's going to happen is only one or two components are going to kind of want to get out of their little homes. And what I do then is I choose a little plastic bag, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, of the appropriate size, put the component in there, and hopefully put it back in the spot where it's supposed to be, or in another spot that's large enough to hold it, hold it now that it's actually in a bag. Hmm. If this is completely impossible, then you're going to have to go to plan B, <laughs> and that's unfortunately getting rid of the plastic insert. 
Now, obviously, I'm a collector. I would never in a million years throw the plastic insert away. Of course not. <laughs> so I just put... Heresy. Like, exactly. <laughs> just put a little piece of masking tape or something on it right where the heck it came from. Throw it in the Tupperware container up in your attic. You know, whatever. But just, I wouldn't throw it away. If you want to throw it away... Throw it away. I've thrown mine away. <laughs> I know that makes Dave want to reach across the table and hit me, but I've thrown mine away. <laughs> so once I've made the decision that I can no longer use the insert, now here comes the dreaded baggy solution. I don't just have, like, a sandwich baggie. I go out to my local hobby store or packing store, and I buy several sizes of bags. I have some 3-inch by 4-inch bags some 3x5-inch bags, some 4x4 four four bags, and some 4x6 bags, in addition to the standard 7x8 quart size bags, and there's also those 11x11 11 11 gallon size <laughs> bags, which, believe it or not, I have used some of those <laughs> in some games. Well, it's crazy. Truck, Truckloads of goober. you yeah, got to exactly. have the gallons, too, right? Exactly. So you've got a whole plethora of bag sizes to choose from, so now just put all the components in bags based on that original way that you wanted to store your game so it can come out and have the game ready to play. Um, there's also some other ways, if you're not a huge fan of plastic bags, um, for everything I've seen people design tuck boxes to put cards in. That's a little more effort because you actually have to build them out of some lightweight card stock mm. and everything and cut them out and everything like that. You can also use card sleeves. Maybe you have a car, a game where there's only five or ten cards in the whole game, but people are going to have them in their hands the whole time or they're going to be thrown around the table. Just put them in some sleeves. That'll certainly extend the life of those particular cards. One thing I never, ever, never, never do, <laughs> and that's put rubber bands around them. Two things can happen. Sure, if you put it in there for you know half a year, you're not going to notice anything, but ten years later, you're going to notice a crease in those cards, no matter you know, how loose the rubber band is, it creases the cards, which is horrible. If it doesn't crease the cards, it's going to actually break down. The rubber band itself is going to break down. And stain it's the gonna, cards. And it's going to stain the cards big time with all kinds of icky, rubbery nastiness. <laughs> so try not to use rubber bands at all. Um, going back to the, um, the little spine test and the components moving and shuffling about the box, sometimes the components are only moving around because there's the... The board game doesn't fit in tightly. You know, when you put the board on top and you put the lid on, there's space in there. I go out and buy white foam board for like 77 cents for a poster size piece, and I'll cut one the size of the board and slip it in there on top of the board. Now, when you put the lid on, it's there's snug and it's tight. It's going to snug it tight, and you can now get by with just shaking the hell out of it, and, and stuff's gonna not going to come out of the little. And if there are a couple of these. If the board actually, the insert, if it was designed horribly, sometimes the board will not fit snugly on top of that insert. Mm. It's kind of loose. I'll actually cut a piece of this foam board a little smaller than the board so it fits down in where the board was supposed to fit, mm. then put the board <laughs> on top of it. So those are kind of the techniques that I use, believe it or not, <laughs> so, in every single game that I buy. So to review, inventory and then... Uh, Look at the setup and decide how it would be best when you're picking out of the box to right. play. Use plastic baggies. Oh, do the spine test. Sorry. Right, exactly. Do the spine test. Uh, use plastic baggies. Yeah, especially if you're um, not going to keep the insert. No rubber bands. Exactly. That's heresy. And, uh, um, and the foam core. The foam core, exactly. And the only other thing I did mention, which um, is a lot of times I will, when I buy an expansion for a game, 
I will store the expansion in the original box. Oh, That's right. a reason to leave the plastic insert out to give yourself more room. And I think we're going to show some pictures yeah, of room-bound because <laughs> I have room-bound the first two large expansion expansions and at least 10 to 12 of the deck expansions all in my room-bound box, which saves... With, a, with room to spare. With room to spare, exactly. And... You know, if you've got a large collection, you've got to save space everywhere you can. Yeah. <laughs> so those are my tips on how to store your game when you first buy it. Um, look for more handy-dandy cool stuff in uh, some later versions of this little segment. Yeah, and if you have if you have input, if you have ideas for right. this segment, uh, write us at stevenatthespiel.net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. I know there's people out there as crazy, if not crazier than I am. Well, I'd say as crazy. I wouldn't go <laughs> that far. <laughs> so you may be crazy, but you're not off the hook. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> so um, your sommelier challenge, you're, okay. back, you're back on the hot seat next okay, week. I know I'm ready. You, that's two weeks in a row for you. I know you had to do the collector's heavy lifting here, but you're back on the hot seat with sommelier next cool. week. And uh, this challenge comes from our buddy at the Dice Tower, Tom Vassell. Uh-oh. <laughs> we did a nice uh, segment. Thanks again, Tom, for letting us uh, fill in and do a little segment on his show. Um, and as he mentioned in that particular episode, he had sent me a challenge, which I'd been oh, keeping on the back burner for just such I'd... an occasion. <laughs> Fine. So this comes straight from Tom at the Dice Tower, and he wants you to find five games that are based around the Renaissance trading sort of idea Okay. Um, that are fun because of the theme. Oh, okay. Uh, so that the theme isn't, as we just discussed today with, uh, with Mikarinos, right. that it's just, that one is kind of pasted on. Absolutely. That part of the fun of playing these games comes out of the, the theme of the game. Um, so that's that's your challenge. Uh. I'll, I'll give you a little out that if you... If you can open it up to just Renaissance-themed if you absolutely have to, but... I think you should stick to see if you can meet Tom's challenge first. Five Renaissance trading style games that rely heavily on the theme for part of the fun and enjoyment right. of the game. Right. So that they're okay. well incorporated into the thing. So awesome. That's that's gonna be fun. And we'll have we'll have Tom weigh in. Maybe we can even get him to record his his response or ah, something. There you go. Uh, and and include that in a future episode cool. and, and see if how he uh whether you get to hold the game sommelier crown for another week <laughs> sweet after the last one i'm gonna need <laughs> cool i'm looking for, this is gonna be very fun mailbag it's time for you to let us know what you think comments questions criticisms let us have it so first things first on the mailbag we have some thank yous uh, to, to give out, we need to thank uh, Jeffrey Myers in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Ryan Bruns in Layton, Utah, and David Shapiro in Milwaukee for your donations. Um, we hope that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. There's a movie podcast that I listen to, Film Spotting's the name of it, and what they do with their donors is they give out movie-themed nicknames to all of their okay. donors. Cool. So with the tip of, tip of the hat to the fine folks at Film Spotting, from now on, we're going to give each of our donors a game-themed nickname. Um, it's just our little way of saying thanks and expressing our gratitude for helping us keep the show going. Be very afraid. <laughs> <laughs> so there's going to be kind of a theme uh, to, to these first ones. It's pretty obvious. There's no mystery connection or anything here. So we present to you, and I, I backdated it to include all okay, don awesome. donors since we had a few before this episode. So we present to you Jeffrey, the mayor of Catan Myers. <laughs> Ryan, the road builder, Bruns, David, one sheep shy of a Shapiro, 
Crazy Dave in Wisconsin. Uh, of course, we also are going to include the other two. So we have Ben the Brick Tishi and Trademaster Bei Wei Chong. Awesome. So congratulations and thank you for your donations. And, and we will accept any donations. We, we don't demand them, of course. It's always going to be free here at the Spiel. But we certainly do appreciate your help. And this is just a little goofy way of us being able to say thanks to you all. So on with the mailbag. So before I start with a couple of emails, I wanted to give a shout out to Scotty in Mississippi. <laughs> say thank you very much for putting me out of my misery. <laughs> we were playing an online game of talisman for the last uh, what seems like forever. Four months. Four I months. Think. Um, needless to say, I died several times. <laughs> so Dave's only skill was dying. Exactly, and I was damn good at it. But thank you, finally, Scotty, the victor. <laughs> we'll probably be setting up, that was on occasionalgamer.co.uk, right. and we'll be setting up a new game. So if anybody has interest in playing a, a new game of Talisman, uh, send us an email at stevenatthespiel.net. Or daveatthespiel.net. And uh, we'll get a new game going here soon, and maybe Dave will have better luck with a, a new game. You hey, never I know. was hoss until the dragon kicked my butt. <laughs> never mind. Next game, baby. <laughs> okay, so getting on to some emails. Uh, we had a couple great emails um, from two people. One from Philip Klaus here in Indianapolis, which is always great to hear That's from a great. local That's guy. Cool. <laughs> and one from Ron Barnett, um, who listened to our... Basically, they heard our segment on the Dice Tower. And we're really stoked to be listening to another podcast. And <laughs> below, you know, behold, the spiel is everywhere. <laughs> so that was really cool to hear from those guys. Um, also, Ron adds that he wanted to thank us very much for mentioning Tactics 2 in our list. He says that Tactics 2 was the game that got him hooked on war games, and he never heard anyone actually mention it, <laughs> mentioning it. So, very cool. Um, thank you guys for listening to us, for listening to our podcast, and for finding our little section on the Dice Tower interesting, too. So. Yeah, yeah, and thanks again to, to Tom Vassell, who let us do the, the segment on the, the Dice Tower. We really had a good time with that, and, and certainly appreciate his graciousness in inviting us onto his show. That exactly. was just cool. And hopefully, like with the Somalia Challenge, we, we, we can return the favor here Bingo. pretty soon. <laughs> um, so let's see. Uh, we have John Lund, who rightly calls, uh, calls us out for our Hoosier pronunciations. <laughs> we would never do that. The, the truth hurts sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> my friend. So he writes in and says, I'm not a native French speaker, but I think you've been adding an extra hard E uh, syllable to Somalier, making it sound like Somalia, uh, the African <laughs> nation. For what it's worth, he has a friend who is a professional Somalier, and he pronounces the word Somalier. I think it's actually an issue of we were putting the accent on the wrong syllable. Exactly. So we were saying Somalier instead of Somalier. So... We promise from now on I can't I uh, can't yeah. say for sure that we're going to do it right every time <laughs> but we we will make a concerted effort as Hoosier boys here to uh to pronounce it as as properly as we can. <laughs> Hopefully from now on every time I say smalier won't be followed by a giggle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I got it right finally. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Okay, we um, also got an email from Phil Rogers. If you'll remember, Phil is the gentleman in Scotland who was doing that really cool survey oh, on games. Exactly. Well, he wanted to write us and say thank you very much because apparently our podcast helped him get like an extra hundred or so surveys filled in. Thank you, listeners. Which is totally excellent. He said his survey is going to be closing in a week, but once it has... Um, I'll be collecting the data and get ready for publication. I think at this point it's actually been closed. It's By the time closed. this thing okay. will go to air, I think his survey will be closed. But he promised to share his his Excellent. findings with us. Excellent. And, well, and I'm we'll glad we could help him out at least a little bit there at the end. So good luck uh, 
Phil? <laughs> so let's see. Uh, we have uh, Gregory in Seattle gives us some love and then picks up the sommelier gauntlet for the rom- romantic game challenge that uh. Dave, Dave left lying on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this, is, this is a little bit long, but I think it's, it's very well written and, and very, very awesome. nicely done. So here we go. Uh, and I quote, Ah, now this is more like it. Most of the board game comment I was finding on the internet was beginning to take on a certain sameness. And, and, eh. And I quote, Ah, now this is more like it. Most of the board game comment I was finding on the internet was beginning to take on a certain sameness. And not an altogether friendly sameness either. But I was just, but just as I was drowning in a sea of snobbish groupthink, adolescent in-jokes, and truly unfortunate fake British accents, my wild grasping fingers brushed the life pres- preserver that was the link to the spiel. Someone else who likes a wide variety of games in different styles and genres. The versatility of your coverage is appreciated. You, along with Jim Van Verth's Vintage Gamer, finally provide a game podcast I look forward to. Not everyone is a perceptive enough game sommelier got it right, <laughs> to realize that there are different crowds for different uh, different games. Speaking of the sommelier, since you seem to find the romantic getaway challenge irritating, may I offer a few suggestions? Please. <laughs> I'm not sure it was irritating so much as, as just it bamboozled Dave. <laughs> exactly. He, says, he actually says it as an aside, sorry is actually a very witty choice, but Ro- Rosenclavier seems a bit like bringing her power tools as a romantic <laughs> gift. <laughs> uh, Friedman Freeze's uh, uh, Funny Friends is a very funny game that centers on, almost entirely on sex, marriage, and relationships. They may not be healthy relationships, mind you, but that's where the, much of the humor lies. Uh, removed from the box, this could easily slip in a bag. Uh, Flux features love as a keeper, and you can even win by having nothing else. Avalon Hill's 1979 classic, The Legend of Robin Hood, demands uh, as a winning condition that Robin keep Maid Marian out of the clutches of Sir Guy and whisk her away to a wedding in the forest with Friar Tuck. How romantic is that? I'd also like to include China Moon, where the frogs help a lovesick duck by gathering flowers but there is that irritating three-player minimum. <laughs> so instead of focusing on a common gift brought to such gateways, um, brought to such gateways and toss in cheap asses, enemy chocolatier, which uh, may be carried in a heart-shaped cardboard box. <laughs> nice little touch there. So have I earned the right, nay, the honor to call myself a game sommelier? Maybe an assistant sommelier, kind of like a sous chef, only with a lot less climbing involved? <laughs> Very, very well done, Gregory. That's awesome. You definitely qualify as the game's Malier. Yeah, yeah. I think he's he's earned that crown outright. Uh, he's he's ripped it from your yeah. your clutches until the next episode. I'll be taking it back next episode, baby. <laughs> so, those were some great picks. Those I thought that was awesome. That was a really very, cool. very creative, excellent job there, Gregory. Uh, we don't have a crown or or anything for you or a bottle of wine, but hey, maybe we have to do that in the future. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Moving onward and upward here. Cool. Got a great email from Ryan in Utah. Wanted to ask you a couple, couple questions about our game class that we just recently taught just a handful yeah, of just, days ago. Just this last Monday. Um, he, also, he also enjoys the podcast. He really enjoyed Stephen's um, take on the Star Wars theme, Sommelier. Oh, so that's very cool. Um, just wanted to know, know some questions about kind of what we did in the class, how it went, and everything like that. Um, we had a great time. It was basically about an hour and a half, two hours long. It was kind of an intro to Euro-style games. 
gateway style games. It was received very well. Um, well, he wanted to know some details. I'm not sure if we're qualified <laughs> for details yet, since this was kind of our first foray. Yeah, he was asking if we did some sort of audio transcript of the class that we might be able to share with people, and that's an excellent idea, actually, right. Ryan. But we hadn't hadn't actually planned that far out in terms right. of incorporating it into the show. But there, we might actually do something along those lines. But this was kind of our first actual trial by fire doing the class, exactly. and I think we're we're kind of learning as we go, just as we did a year ago, starting out with the spiel right. so uh, you know as we feel a little more competent and qualified to kind of give you a little more uh insight into what we're doing with the game classes we'll be we'll be more than happy to to share that info exactly. info with you but i think we're off to a good start and we seem to have a good crowd and and the librarian already asked us to maybe come back and do some actual game sessions exactly which this is summer, kind of which is really what we'd rather exactly i think we want to get we want to have people get hands-on playing the games because mm-hmm. no matter how good we are Learning about a game is only so much fun. It was sort of a tease, you know, going, look at all these awesome games that you're not going to get to play tonight. <laughs> right. <laughs> it felt sort of bad because <laughs> everybody was like, woo, this is awesome, and then we don't get to play. But hopefully in the future, and especially any local listeners in the Indiana or Indianapolis area, we'll certainly keep you informed when right. we have these classes coming up. Or uh, people are going to be in town for things like Gen Con uh, if we have any game play- playing plans in, in that right. time frame. We'll, we'll certainly keep you posted exactly. on that, too. <laughs> I think, is this last but not least? Uh, I think, uh, think it I is. I think we have almost reached the end of the mailbag, reaching into the bottom here. We have a comment from si- uh, Simon Wilcock in England. He had some cor- corrections and comments about our rundown on Caesar and Cleopatra oh, from okay. last time. He he rightfully accuses us of running roughshod over a few of the, the uh, details of the thing. So here's what he says. Ignoring the recent confusion over Cleopatra and the Society of Architect. Text, I was pu- puzzled by your description of Caesar and Cleopatra. Since when was the active versus passive turn a key part of the game? I've played around 30 plus times and I've yet to take a passive turn. It's basically a my hand is rubbish and I need to change it option, which you never really need to use because there's always something you can do. Contrary to what you said, there's not a vote of confidence at the end of the passive turn, only an active one. I'm wondering if you thought there, that was the only way to restock your hand was to choose a passive turn. Uh, this is not the case as you replenish the five at the end of your active turn as well as passive. Right. So what gives? Well, he's totally right about the vote not the happening vote, right, exactly. uh, at the end of a passive turn. I totally screwed that up. The active-passive thing, I think that just may be a play style thing. I, I did maybe misrepresent it in saying that you're going to take it more often than you would. But right. I definitely have played games where I've used that as an option to cycle through uh, exactly. you know, a really crappy hand and get back to it. I think maybe that just comes down to play style uh, differences more than it certainly is an option in the game. But I perhaps I misspoke in saying that it was a little more of an option. You know, it's something that you're going to do every time. I didn't mean exactly. to indicate that, but it is a viable option. And I think there are points in the game where you're going to actually want to to right. do that. I, at least I've, in the games that I right. played, you know, it's not something you want to do. But there's sometimes if you think it's going to help you strategically that you may right. have to just reload. <laughs> but thank you to Simon yeah. for, for keeping us on the up and up we we Definitely. appreciate we strive as human you know to be as accurate as humanly possible and and uh you know we're gonna make an occasional goof it's just we're we're as human as the next gamer steven's gonna make an occasional uh, goof. Yeah. i try and make them as often as possible <laughs> like every five minutes or yeah. so yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, thanks for Simon for for keeping us Excellent. on the straight and narrow there. And and of course the mailbag's always open. So send us send us your mail and your comments either on the website or to Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net. And you know what? I think I think the spiel is a quarter century old. How do Woo-hoo! you how do you feel being twenty five here? I like being twenty five. <laughs> it I seems love like that. an improvement. Woo-hoo! Yeah, <laughs> we, we got younger. Yeah, <laughs> after this hour excellent. and a half. <laughs> so it's time to put a lid on this episode. I'm Stephen Conway, and I'm David Colson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You, you just have, have to play. play. Chupacabra!